So good evening to you. Welcome to, uh, to part three of our three-part series um, introducing the, the study of theology. And so uh, what I have shared with you, if you've been here on one of the other two weeks, is that we are intentionally starting with the position of uh, bibliology or with the study of bibliology, which is the study of the Bible itself. So two weeks ago, we talked about um, it, in the simplest of terms, how special the Bible is, how unique the Bible is, and it really stands alone from any other work uh, that might claim to somehow be uh, a parallel to it. There's nothing like the Bible. Then last week, um, after we kind of established that idea, we talked about, well, then what really constitutes the Bible? We talked about the canon of Scripture. What is the canon of Scripture? What's about, what, what do we do with all this extra stuff uh, that there are others that claim are supposed to be a part of Scripture? And what does that mean? So for this evening, what I want to discuss, or at least what I'd like to um, introduce to you, is another important biblical topic, especially for conservative theology, but I would say for all of Christian theology, which is known as inerrancy. We will talk about inerrancy initially, that's where we'll go for the evening, and then as a result of that, that will lead us to a conversation about um, Bible difficulties. What do we do with passages of the Bible that seem to present some type of difficulty for us? So I will by no means this evening uh, be able to provide for you an exhaustive discussion on this topic. As I have the other two weeks, the goal has always been to try to introduce to you the major ideas and the major ways of thinking and try to hopefully provide you with some helpful starting point information that if you want to then use that and jump off, that can be a fantastic starting point. So that's my goal for the evening. So that being said, we are going to start with a definition of inerrancy. Uh, as always, uh, I pretty much recognize everybody that's in the room, so I won't go through all the introductory information, but if you have questions, please ask those questions. The fill-ins are just for you. There is no test. Shall we begin? Yes, we shall. All right, so uh, let's start with a definition of inerrancy. So what I'm going to do is I wrote down in point A a definition, and then I want to pull it apart into four parts that I want to discuss. So let's look uh, word for word at the definition here on your sheet. The, the definition of inerrancy is that God communicated to mankind through human authors such that within their individual personalities, the authors composed God's revelation without any errors while writing the original autographs. Okay, so there's a lot of loaded terminology in that definition, as any philosophical or theological definition will, uh, will always contain lots of big words. Let's pull out some of the most important parts uh, in this definition. So blank one, God communicated, God communicated. All of this, in all of our conversation this evening, is going to spin back to the nature of God himself. The, the support that I will show you for inerrancy comes from the concept of inspiration, the concept of inspiration we've already established from within the character of God. We are starting from the position that it is God communicating, that scripture is God's word. And so our dependence on it for accuracy is linked with our ability to depend on God. That is probably the key concept. If you are a person that only has about a 14 second attention span, 
I will say this part again, and then you could probably leave and you're good to go, all right? But our dependence on the accuracy of Scripture is linked to our ability to depend on God himself. It comes from God's character, everything that we talked about this or will talk about this evening. Point two, human authors with individual personalities. Human authors with individual personalities. We have talked about how we receive scripture throughout the last couple of weeks. We've talked about how some of scripture came in a form of dictation where God said, hey, I have this message. I want you to write it down. And he said it explicitly. But a lot of scripture is not that way. It's more of an indirect message that was given. So individual human voice influences the text that we read in scripture. And as a result, as a reader, of scripture, you're going to encounter different personalities that are stemming from the individuals that are copying down, or copying is not the right word, that are writing down the things that they're communicating. Those individual personalities are important to recognize. Now, theologically speaking, despite the fact that we are not yet getting into theology proper, the study of God, that's what we're going to do in the next block, but theologically speaking, in order to understand this concept, you have to be okay with the reality that God operates in a universe in which he has supreme power, but still allows humans to have some responsibility and activity in the midst of that supreme power. I know that that is a uh, somewhat problematic idea when you start thinking about it philosophically, but I think for the majority of you in the room, my guess would be that's not that shocking of a concept, that God has power and does stuff, and in the meantime, human beings are doing stuff, and God's so powerful that he can use the human beings doing stuff to accomplish his own plans. That's the simplest version in which I'm saying there's an interplay between God's power and human responsibility. They both interplay. And we see those on the pages of Scripture as well, not just within the content, but even within the personalities that are used to compose the books of Scripture. That's important when we start looking at how do we pull apart these supposed difficulties. Point three, without any errors. Okay, so this really, when it comes down to it, is the meat of what we're discussing. We'll unpack later... Um, different ways in which people have, um, ha have interpreted this phrase. What does it mean to make an error? What types of errors are we discussing? But for the, the basis of our introductory information that we're going to work with is that we're going to say that there were no errors, and I'm going to go so far as to hold the most conservative position, which also is the position of our church, that there are no errors whatsoever, what, whatever label you might put in front of it that there are no errors whatsoever, and we'll establish that in a little bit. Finally, um, in the original autographs, in the original autographs, by original autographs, what I mean, so when you uh, went to that uh, sporting event that you went to and somebody, uh, you caught the baseball that was that was hit, and then you go and meet the guy that hits the baseball afterwards. That's what we typically think of when we think of autograph, right? You did that?
Oh, he took the actual ball that he hit from a home run. Yeah, that, that's, it's not good enough that he makes millions of dollars to play a game. But <laughs> okay, but nonetheless, that's, that's typically what I think about when I, when I hear the word autograph. That's typically what I think of. Can I have your autograph, right? The, the famous person actually writing down the original text of their name on whatever is being signed. When we use it in this term, what we're talking about is the original manuscript or the original uh, material, because not all the Bible was originally written on the same type of material, the original material on which the words were written down. Now, on multiple occasions, we have discussed the science of textual criticism. I've tried to introduce to you how this works in terms of how we try to determine through the scientific process that the copies that we have are accurate reflections of what was originally written down. However, despite the fact on multiple occasions, I've told you that we have in the high 90 percentile of uh, the high 90 percentile that the, the information that we have in our current copies reflect what was originally written down, that still leaves space for some stuff to be inappropriately copied, that, that in, inappropriately transmitted, that things could accidentally be spelled wrong, or word order could be switched, or something, uh, the wrong word that might be a homophone. You know that, you know that word homophone? We're kind of the same there or there, and you might write down the wrong one or whatever the case may be. It's possible that that stuff could be there. Our definition of inerrancy is only covering that which the information that God communicated was done so and written down by the author without any errors. And if any errors popped up later as a, as a result of the copying that came to the translations that we have, we're not concerned with those errors when it comes to our information for inerrancy. Do you see the distinguish, uh, the distinguishing that we need to make there? Does that make sense, everybody? For the yes, exactly for the original source document. Yes, good point. That's another way of saying it. That the the information that was recorded on the original source document was done so without any errors. Okay, everybody clear on that idea? That's our working definition of inerrancy. Okay, so the question is, why should I care? Right. Is, is this important to Christian theology? I've already told you that it is. Um, and I'd like to point out to you, uh, looks like about three different points that I'd like to make to start to hopefully reveal to you that this is an important issue. Um, point A, if one thing is false, the whole is in question. If one thing is false, or you could maybe put the alternative word of wrong, the whole is in question. It is uh, amazing how often the Holy Spirit sees fit for Jesse and I to have information that we share from the front, kind of paralleling one another. Uh, I have never heard Jesse quote Augustine before, let alone even have I been in a church where people commonly say his name correctly? They always say Augustine, which is in Florida, by the way. Augustine is the church father. Jesse saw fit this morning for whatever reason to discuss church father Augustine, uh, or Augustine. Well, I did it. I did it like that. See how I was judging other people and it came right back on myself. Love it. Love it. Here's a quote from Augustine. The most disastrous consequences must follow upon our believing that anything false is found in the sacred books. That is to say 
that the men by whom the scripture has been given to us and committed to writing put down in these books anything false. If you once admit into such a high sanctuary of authority one false statement, there will not be left a single sentence of those books, which, if appearing to anyone difficult in practice or hard to believe, may not by the same fatal rule be explained away as a statement in which intentionally the author declared what is not true. It is important to note when he is writing this. Do you, do you see the time frame in which he was alive? I didn't give you the specific time in which this, this was penned because we don't exactly know, but I gave you the borders of his life. Notice how soon Augustine was living after Jesus was on the earth. We're talking a couple hundred years later. This idea of trying to support the inerrancy of Scripture, do not follow with many theologians that would try to tell you, oh, well, we didn't start establishing that until maybe the late 1800s or early 1900s in Western culture. Uh, what do you do with this? This is a whole lot older than that type of idea. Inerrancy has been a part of the church for quite some time. And let's make sure that we're clear on what his statement is saying. That if there's anything inside the sacred books, inside scripture, that might have been written down incorrectly, then there's nothing that if it is too difficult for us to do, or it might seem impossible or it might just seem completely unlikely, there's nothing that might fall to us looking at it and going, well, he probably didn't actually mean to write that down. That creates a big problem, which is what I'm trying to synthesize with what we wrote down in point A. If one thing is false or wrong, then the whole thing is in question. It is an important issue to try to determine whether or not there are errors in Scripture. So let's talk about false views of inerrancy and why it might be important here to recognize what's going on. Now, I, I'm, I'm telling you first um, some false ideas of inerrancy without first establishing for you why I believe inerrancy to be correct. We will get there, but I want to I use these also by way of kind of definition to distinguish what type of inerrancy we're talking about. Because there are some people that would say, like point B1 here, that the spiritual is inerrant. The scientific isn't. That the spiritual is inerrant, but the scientific isn't. This is a view which essentially states that the theological truths that God gave us have no errors in them. We can trust the theological truths. But when things like numbers or dates or scientific facts are written down, that those were prone to error because these were non-scientific cultures. That's kind of the argument that's made. Does that make sense? So there's like theological content that you can trust to be without error. If it's like important for your salvation, we can trust that it has no errors. But if it's just trying to write things down that might document certain numbers or names or time frames, anything that you might try to scientifically verify, that might be subject to error. That's one view of inerrancy that I'm not saying uh, we are going with this evening. You can look back at our definition and, and look. 
that I did not qualify any type of error, that it, was, that it is without error completely. There are those that would say that, well, you know, some of it is with error, but some of it is not. Augustine has a little bit of a problem with that. Can you see that in his quote? That's a, that, that creates a little bit of a problem, and we'll talk a little bit more why in a moment. Another false view of inerrancy, but a, one that's held that I want to make sure that you're clear that we're not talking about tonight, is the inerrancy of purpose. This is B2, the inerrancy of purpose. Those that would hold that the Bible is only inerrant in its purpose is that they would say that the point for which God gave Scripture can't be thwarted. You can't get in its way. That there are no ways in which God could have made a mistake in accomplishing what, accomplishing what he set out to accomplish by giving human beings Scripture. But the details are not important. The details might have flaws. They might have mistakes. They might have errors in them. That's, what, that's probably best described as the inerrancy of purpose. When, I, when we are talking about inerrancy tonight and I try to discuss for you and support for you views of inerrancy, I am not supporting these views. And let me tell you why. Let's get into the problem. This is point C, the problems with the wrong views of inerrancy. First, there's the moral issue. The moral issue is this. If God can lie, is he really all good? And by all good, I just mean to give a simpler definition to the idea of omnibenevolent. Um, is God truly the supreme character or having the, the highest of moral character if he's capable of lying? And we'll talk a little bit more about this uh, in a moment. But just for the sake of it, if God really knows everything and he says something wrong, isn't he lying? Unless for whatever reason he's intentionally trying to say something wrong, but it's not a... I, I don't see how you end up in a place ultimately where you, where you have to say that if God allows a falsehood in his word, that it's not him lying. And it creates a bit of a moral issue, especially when we are trying to establish our character to emulate that of God's. Question? Yes. Go. Okay. So, so let's just say you got a whole bunch of names, right? And whoever's writing down the names, right? He got them from his grandf. They've been passed down, oral mm -hmm. tradition, yeah. right? And you know, somehow over time, Joe became Joseph or whatever, and that gets in. How would that be? How could that not happen? Or why would that be worse than the scribe who's working hard in the third century to get all this stuff down? And he makes a scribe mistake. To me, it's still like it, it does kind of say the, God wasn't wrong. You know, the oral tradition corrupted Joe to Joseph, all right? How's that any different than the scribe in the third century who made a scribing mistake? So if I, if I understand your question, to try to restate it for the listeners at home, ultimately, uh, is there a moral difference between a mistake made by the original writer 
and one who might be transcripting a couple hundred years later. Is that, is yeah. that kind of the core of your question? And, and the, the, in the original writer, okay, didn't in his mind lie, okay? Because a lot of this stuff was oral tradition, okay? So in his mind, he didn't lie any more than the scribe thought that he lied, okay? He just, yeah, oral okay. tradition had corrupted Joe to Joseph. So let me create another distinction that maybe I haven't driven home as hard as I'd like to. Um, as we have discussed over the last couple of weeks and introduced the idea of the inspiration of Scripture, which we will again discuss this evening, if in scenario A, the person originally writing it down, taking it from um, what was passed down orally and is fir the first person to write something down, if he wrote it down incorrectly, I would say that there would be no moral difference between that circumstance provided that the individual was not intentionally doing it for deceptive reasons, that there would be no moral difference between that and a person copying it down incorrectly 300 years later. But that, that scenario A is separate than the scenario B that is what I actually want to discuss for the current moment in that uh, what we're talking about, the original writings of Scripture, those being the inspired text are the only ones that could possibly be without error because those are the ones through which God's breath itself, as we'll look at the passage again from Paul, that God's breath itself was uttering for the purposes of mankind receiving the information. So if inerrancy is not linked to inspiration, then there could be a problem in trying to establish it. However, what you're going to see throughout the evening and going back for the sake of inspiration is for the sake of explanation. Uh, we'll say that inspiration is that God's, God himself is behind the words of human authors. And we'll talk, behind, we'll, we'll talk about these ideas a little bit more this evening. But that our idea of inerrancy stems from the fact that God himself is behind the original Manuscripts, or what were the words that you the used? The original source documents. Thank you. I like that better than my autographs or manuscripts. Did you already uh, mention that about intent and, and purpose? Because if the scribe, like you're saying, he writes down that Jesus died on the cross Wednesday morning, and, and you have other people saying he died Tuesday afternoon, the point is it really doesn't matter because the purpose and the intent was to convey that Jesus died on the cross. So the date and the time is not, I don't see, is, is significant when somebody is writing stuff down. I'm gonna, trying to put a time and a, uh, yeah, I appreciate what you're saying there in terms of how the date and the time details may not be as important as the original or as the purposed details. But I'm still gonna take a stronger stance even on that idea and say that the date and the time will inherently be correct in the original source documents. I'm actually going to take the most conservative of viewpoints this evening. Um, go ahead. When you were, like when, let's say Paul wrote a letter, or John wrote a letter to the Romans, whatever. Um, okay, and then when it got there, the scribes made 10 copies so mm -hmm. that they could send them everywhere. And so if an error was made then, and then other copies were made of that, how do we know that, no deceit anywhere in it, but how do we, how would it become apparent? We don't have the original documents. 
Yeah. Material maybe, but uh -huh. but couldn't it poss isn't it possible that there's something in there that wasn't in the original? Absolutely. Stuff? And what you're trying to ask is how how in the science of textual criticism do they discover a copyist error? And ultimately that comes down to the process by which they do their textual criticism. Um, for the sake of not spending a ton of time on it, essentially what they can do is they trace it back because they find the relationship between manuscripts, that these obviously were copies of these, and these were obviously copies of these, and these were obviously copies of, wait a minute, that one's different. What happened? And realize at that point, was that where the copyist error slipped in? Or while you're looking at families of manuscripts from a completely different area of the world, they have a different word there or a different order there. And that's, that's what that science of textual criticism does. And why if you look at, um, I don't have my Greek Bible with me, but if you look at the bottom of a UBS text, which I introduced last week, like the text on the page, if the page is this big, the text on the page is here and the notes on how they've figured out what words are supposed to be where are actually the majority of the page on the bottom. So it's, the answer to that is it's the process by which they trace the lineage where they figure out where the copyist may have made the mistake. Yeah? Well, for dummies, can we just trust that this is God's will and it is reliable? I would say that what I don't like about that is that that's not a dumb idea at all. I'm using a lot of words to essentially say just that, that because we are going to bank on God's character and who God is, we can trust that the Bible, which is God's word, is without error. However, there will be many people outside of these doors that will pick certain points at which they might find tension in their souls. I'm trying to give you some tools where you might be able to have those discussions or at least beware of where those discussions might be taking place. But I don't think it's for dummies at all. I think that's actually the core of what we're saying this evening. Yeah. So let's, uh, let's keep going. So that, the, the first problem that I had with those false views of inerrancy was the moral issue. The second problem is the guidance issue. And this is what we got introduced to by Augustine. I want to just put it down again in front of you. The guidance issue, that if Scripture can be wrong, how will we know the correct passages? Like I said, I'm going to take the most conservative view tonight about inerrancy, but to say that if there is a point in Scripture that copies down a date incorrectly or writes down a date incorrectly, but then I have a struggle with a spiritual issue over here as it is unpacked. Where, on what basis do I get to say, well, I don't have to worry about the date issue, but I have to worry about the spiritual issue? Well, what if the spiritual issue was written down incorrectly? And it causes the thing, like we said about Augustine's point, that if we start to have any error possible, then the whole thing could possibly fall to question. Um, I think I have the third. The third, and uh, just one interesting point of introduction that I want to give to you, is that if it's only about purpose, if the idea of inerrancy is only about God's purposes, and not the words themselves, 
that does not seem to really be consistent with the text itself. Let me share with you two texts this evening. If you have your Bibles, turn with me there. I'm not going to completely exegete the text for you, but I just want to point them out. That in Matthew 22, Matthew 22, Jesus is having an argument with the Sadducees, and I love how Jesus has arguments, because Jesus was constantly, or people were trying to constantly put Jesus into a corner or back him up against a wall, and there was a whole lot of political and theological information that worked behind the Uh, behind the scenes of this argument that was taking place here. But look at the way Jesus responds in his argument. And as for the, so we're in chapter 22, verse 31. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. If you read this passage, and I encourage you to do so, if you read this passage in the context in which where the Sadducees were trying to nail him into a corner, Jesus' entire argument hinges on the word am, a form of to be, the smallest verb that you might be working with for the sake of your argument. If Jesus believed in solely the inerrancy of purpose, it's somewhat interesting to indicate or to to notice that Jesus' argument is based off of the tiny phrase of to be. Go back and look at that when you have some more time and recognize that Jesus saw the specific words as being valuable. Similar to this, go over to Galatians chapter 3 so that we're not looking just at Jesus, but we'll look at Paul as well. In Galatians, Paul's letter to the church that was in Galatia, In Galatians 3.16, as I pointed out to you on one of our previous evenings, it's funny how often the 3.16 verses are somewhat interesting. But nonetheless, look at 3.16. Actually, we'll start in 15. Uh, To give a human example, brothers, even even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. Paul's entire argument here is based off of not even one word, but one letter of one word, at least in our language. Not offsprings, but offspring. And I encourage you to spend some time with this passage as well to try to understand the significance that Paul is literally making an argument between a singular and a plural tense of a verb. Now, why am I showing you these? The point that I want to make by showing you these texts, and there are other texts that I could take you to, but the point in bringing these up is simply this, that the people that were speaking the words of Scripture, namely Jesus, or Paul writing the words of Scripture, took a view of Scripture that even the words and the forms of words were of crucial value for later explanation. I think that it's not a very difficult step then, once you've received that, to recognize that all of the words then are of crucial importance. Now, I'll grant that somebody might make, well, just those specific words were important because they were important for God's purpose. But at some point, 
you have to recognize that if these arguments are being made off of the singularity or plurality of a word, their view of the reliability of Scripture is a very strong one, a very strong one. So, let's look at whether or not we actually can make the case for inerrancy, and here's what I will do in order to do this. I will not, uh, repeat, repeat, turn your radio on, I will not make for you an argument this evening that is an open and shut argument, a black and white, there is no way that somebody might make an argument against what I am making. Friends, there are people within Protestantism, Roman Catholicism, there are people even in evangelical circles that do not hold to the conservative view of inerrancy that I am sharing with you this evening. And I would go so far to say that many of them are still our brothers and sisters, that this is not an issue that we have to die on. However, I do think that it is an issue of significant importance, so significant that I didn't want to leave a study of the Bible without at least discussing this and its importance to our study of Scripture and usage of Scripture as a source of theological information. If we're going to start studying other theological concepts, we've got to be sure that Scripture is reliable as a source of information for that study. So, that being said, let's look at arguments uh, our arguments for inerrancy. Let's for, look first at point three here, arguments from outside of Scripture. So these are arguments uh, because some might find it a little bit problematic if you try to establish the inerrancy of Scripture by using Scripture. Okay? So at the end of the day, I don't have an issue with that. However, I, I can respect where those people are coming from. So I'll start without using Scripture and start just simply saying with this very simple argument in point A. Point A1 God cannot make mistakes. I know that's huge. That's a huge theological point. But friends, what differentiates Yahweh from the Roman gods and the Grecian gods and the Babylonian gods and the Mormon gods is that God cannot, Yahweh cannot make any mistakes. That if he acts, he does so with supreme wisdom and supreme power, with supreme goodness as his guide. He doesn't make mistakes. Point two, the Bible is God's word. If you haven't picked that up now, I actually believe that. We've talked about that for a couple of weeks. Uh, hopefully you, are, you have been well established in reasons to believe why the Bible is God's word. So then finally... I think that it is safe to assume, in point three, that the Bible has no mistakes. I don't want to cheapen other people's views. Like I said, our brothers and sisters in the faith in some, in the faith in some other locations don't believe in the complete inerrancy of Scripture. They, they don't, and I still consider them brothers and sisters. That being said... I do, and it comes from a pretty simple idea, at least in my head, that if God's not capable of making mistakes, and the Bible is God's word, why is it that there might be mistakes in the Bible? And I would go so far as to say, it's because there's not. There might be copyist mistakes. There might be things that are hard to reconcile. There might be things that we might not even have the tools yet to understand. But if the Bible is God's word and God can't make mistakes, I think it's safe to believe that the Bible has no mistakes. 
That would be my simple argument from outside of Scripture. Go ahead. Um, yeah, I think it's fair to say that not just those two uh, cultic translations that you've discussed that had uh, a translated idea behind them, um, or they, they had a purpose that was deviant behind them, but I think sometimes there have been even other people that have translated texts intentionally obscuring the original meaning of the text to, to accomplish certain things, certainly. And I'm not, again, for our purposes of inerrancy, go back to the definition. I'm not talking about your English texts. Newsflash, your English text has errors, okay? It, your English text has errors because it's a translation of the original text. So there's a, there's a possibility, a strong possibility, that the humans that translated your text from whatever text family they might have used made some mistakes in their translation. That's possible. What we're talking about is the original source documents, okay? So, yeah. Yeah, I think that would be a, that goes back to the point that I was making about the moral problem I would have with anything other than the conservative version of what I'm stating. And I'm going to actually talk about that idea in a little bit as well. But thanks for pointing that out. Yes, that God does not lie. Yeah. No, I like that. If scripture originates from God and God is the source of truth because truth is grounded in God himself, then, then only truth can emanate from God. That which we recognize as truth. How about that? <laughs> okay, good, good, good. Yeah, and I, and I think that's, uh, that, that would be another way of reflecting this same idea, that if scripture stems from God, the character of God would not allow us to believe that there would be anything other than the truth in Scripture. Um, let's look at some, some passages inside Scripture, though, that would seem to be parallel to this idea. Um, I am by no means going to list for you an exhaustive list of passages, just a couple, just to kind of show you some various views uh, that, is, that are written in Scripture about it. So let's look at the argument from within Scripture, point A, the Old Testament passages, uh, let's look at Numbers 23, 19. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers 23, 19. And many of you have already said this. Little did you know that the Holy Spirit was probably behind your words to establish yourself to say something true. This ought to sound familiar to you. In Numbers 23, if I could go to the right chapter, 23, 19. We read this, that God is not a man. Look at how God characterizes man. God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. God is not the type of person that lies. God is not the type of person that thinks one way one day and then the next day wakes up and goes, you know what, I'm not so sure that I did it right yesterday. I'm going to do it a different way. Now, 
we have to take into consideration that there are passages in Scripture that seem to reflect God changing his mind a little bit on things, and theologians do struggle with that idea. However, we struggle with that passage in light of a passage like this, where we get a direct message indicating that God does not change his mind, and he does not lie. Similarly, look over at Psalms 18, or excuse me, Psalm 18, in the book of Psalms. In Psalm 18, verse 30, we see this. Psalm 18, verse 30. This God, his way is perfect. That in and of itself is pretty important, but we'll read on. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. I understand that this, is a, that this is a poem. I understand that this is being written from an artistic perspective. But within that artistic perspective, the author of the poem is indicating for people, you can trust in God. Not only is he true in character, but he is true in word. But if we look at some New Testament passages, I think we start to get some fuller ideas. I want to show you um, this idea in Matthew 22, verse 43. Again, going to Jesus' words, I love how in this way, Jesus starts to explain for people how inspiration actually worked. And he assumes that the inspiration of Scripture is correct. And as we've established prior to this moment, that our idea of inerrancy stems from our idea of inspiration. In Matthew 22, let's say... um, Let's just start in 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. Fun times. Saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. Note what he says in 43 here. So he said to them, how is it then that David, in the spirit, calls him Lord saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Now, you and I, when we read this passage, might look at this and go, what in the world is he doing? And then you might secondarily ask, why is Brad taking me to such an obscure passage? This, uh, this conversation is really fun. I encourage you to, to study it and to learn from it. However, the point that I wanted to draw out for our purposes this evening is that Jesus assumes a certain view of inspiration that is important for us to recognize. Because I personally, I don't know how you feel on this matter, but personally, I'd kind of like to believe the same way Jesus does. He seems like a pretty smart guy, okay? Okay. You're not picking up on my slight sarcasm here. Yeah, it's pretty significant that the smartest person that ever walked the face of the earth believes something. I want to believe the same thing, okay? I want to think the same way. Jesus believed that what what he's quoting in 44 is a text from the Psalm of David. It's a scriptural text that we would find in the Old Testament. But Jesus says that that text was delivered through a human hand under the power of the Holy Spirit. Do you see how he says this? This is the view of inspiration that Jesus automatically assumes. And as we've pointed out on multiple occasions in our times on Sunday nights, that we have found that the, whole, the, old, I'm sorry, the New Testament documents are historically reliable in terms of their transmission of truth. 
Jesus assumes this view of inspiration. And this view of inspiration is parallel to the one that we've looked at from Paul in 2 Timothy, again, chapter 3, verse 16. 2 Timothy, chapter 3, verse 16. Uh, you could also find this in that, what's the great passage in 1 Peter? I can't remember the, I think it's like 2 something or other. Same, but the same idea could be found in Peter. Just for our sake, we're just, we'll just look at Paul's idea in uh, 2 Timothy 3.16 that says this. Do I have the right chapter? Why can't I not find it? Am I not? Oh, because I'm looking at 4.16. It'd be helpful if I looked at 3.16. That all scripture is breathed. I'm not saying that I'm not prone to error. Let's be clear, okay? <laughs> that all scripture is breathed out by God, Theopneustos, God's breath and power coming through him. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. It's interesting just to note, again, not an open and shut argument, but if scripture is useful in all of those things, I find it difficult to hold that there might be components of scripture that might have errors when Paul believes that all scripture is useful for those things. I can anticipate where your question may go because I think you've asked this question before, but let's do it, go. So how would I respond in that when Paul was writing that, he may not have been referring to his own writings or other New Testament writings that might be referring to the Old Testament? Would that be a fair characterization of your question? Okay. Um, so we, we discussed this, not necessarily at length, but did discuss it last week. But uh, the first way in which I would respond to that would I would go, go over to the Peter passage that we looked at last week in Peter's letters, where he equated Paul's writings themselves as, or Paul's writing themselves as scripture, equating them to be equal in terms of value and importance in terms of finding God's word. So even within Paul's time frame, the, the time frame in which he was writing, that his compatriots, fellow apostles, were recognizing his own writings, Paul's writings, as that of scripture. So before I would then go on to establish how I might, might look at other scripture as established in scripture, the very fact that the majority of the New Testament uh, after you get past the Gospels, are in fact the text of Paul's letters. We were establishing already from that that Paul's letters were being seen as equivalent to that of Scripture. I'd start there, and then I'd move on from there. If you're willing to take that, then the rest is easy, right? But that's kind of the, the key component where I'd start. Um, okay, so ultimately, I think what we've, what we've established, again, in a very introductory way, but what we've established is that we could probably make the argument, both from outside of Scripture and from inside of Scripture, that Scripture has no error, and it can be used as a source of reliable truth. So, we put a pause there, a Victor Borga pause. Yeah, I don't know. There's probably Victor Borga. Anybody? Victor? Victor? I'm starting to not be able to use him anymore, but, which is a crying shame of our society. Uh, but anyway, uh, pause there. So, is this to say that there are not things in Scripture that may at first blush or even 17th blush 
appear to be contradictory. No, that's not at all what I'm saying. There are a variety of people, and I do not want to cheapen their experience because I have been there. Maybe you have as well, where you've come across a passage and went, well, wait, wait, wait a minute. Not only do I find, maybe you've come across it and you've just found it to be theologically difficult. And you've had to study and to try to figure out, am I even theologically understanding this text correctly? But maybe you've come across texts that when they might be parallel accounts, they might talk about a king in this book and then talk about the same king in another book and it seems to have some different details and you go, well, wouldn't that be problematic? Isn't, isn't that an issue? What do we do with biblical difficulties is what I'm going to describe to you. What I decided not to do with the evening is to try to pull out for you 35 different things that people see as biblical difficulties and then explain for you why those are not biblical difficulties. The reason is not because I'm afraid of those 35 things. The reason would be because I'd probably pick 35 things that I can easily explain and then what you would do is that you would come to thing 36 and you'd be like, uh, we didn't talk about this one in that class. What I'd rather do is discuss what are the issues that pop up that cause things to appear difficult, and what should we do when we're having that experience? That's how we're going to use the remainder of our time, okay? If you need a, a comprehensive list on all the things that people find difficult about the Bible, that's why atheists made the internet, okay? You, you can use that for that. But that being said, what should we do? Point A, there are some key problems of interpretation that exist out there. Point one, I don't know if you're aware of this, but there are people out there that are biased against Scripture. There are people who are biased against Scripture. There are people who assume that in the face of some type of biblical difficulty that there could possibly be no explanation or that every supposed discrepancy once you investigate it at the end of the day, you're going to realize that it's, that it's a problem and that Scripture cannot be proven to be correct. Let me be fair to those people. On the opposite side of the fence, at this stage in the game, I'm biased towards the relevancy and the accuracy of Scripture. I am, not only because a lot of my life is vested into it, but I've been following God long enough that I have a variety of reasons for believing that that's the case. I don't want to cheapen their position, but a lot of people will immediately come across a contradiction and go, see, see, Scripture can't be trusted, right? They're coming from a wrong place. Instead of looking at it and going, what do we do with this? Ah, I'm glad you asked, and we'll talk more about that. Point two, problems, uh, key problems for interpretation is the people are failing to understand context. Failing to understand context. Friends, this is not just a problem of the outsider, this is a problem of the insider. So much theological inaccuracy, even within my own worldview sometimes, comes from my failure to understand the context. And by context, I mean both the historical context into which the text was originally being written and the literary context in which the phrase is being used. And we'll talk about both of those in a moment here. But we have to recognize that words have meaning within their stated context. Therefore, the context of the passage must dictate our understanding. We are reading many centuries removed from some of these things being written down. We cannot assume, you know, some people will just open up their text and go, well, it says it, and so I believe it. That's great. I'm really glad that you're coming from that position. 
However, there's a lot of stuff that's happened in between it being written down and you reading it today that might cause some misunderstanding. So if you find yourself at a point of tension, maybe that point of tension is coming from your failure to understand the history into which that text was written, or the, the literary context, the flow of thought in the passage itself. That failure to understand that context can sometimes be the core of the difficulty you see. Point three, sometimes it's purely a failure to understand, I'm not gonna say this word correctly, I'll say it like we say it in English, genres. Uh, one of my favorite conservative theologians, D.A. Carson, he's the only person that forces the French interpretation or the French uh, translation of this word is, is it being like Jean or something like that because the French have all kinds of extra letters for every word. Why not? It's, it's just being French. But by, by genres, if you can remember what you learned uh, back when you studied English or literature or whatever the case is, is that the Bible is filled with allegory and metaphor and hyperbole and estimation and prophetic information. They're all there within its page or within its pages. And all of those things must be understood according to how the literary device is being used, right? So if somebody, if the text of scripture said that they went out there and they slayed them all, Maybe it was, maybe it was a, a general statement to say that the battle was definitively won. And you, look, you see the, the difference there? You and I do that type of thing. I love hyperbole when I talk about things. I must have spent like 27 hours yesterday watching baseball games, right? Because what that conveys, did I spend 27 hours? No, you know that that's not physically possible for me to spend 27 hours watching baseball games. But what you immediately receive from that idea is that I spent pretty much my entire day watching my kids' baseball games. Yay. But what, <laughs> the, the point is you and I are getting that. But sometimes when you read it on the page, you forget that stuff. And if, it and if it presents a problem, sometimes you have to recognize those literary tools that are being used. Point four. It's exactly like that. Yeah, yeah, gave 110%, right? Right. But, all right, so, wait, if, let's say. I'm sorry, you didn't raise your hand, it doesn't count. But if on scripture, Let's just say something like that made it into scripture. That's what he said. Okay. 27 hours, you know? And so how do you differ? I mean, that's why I've always been, yeah, probably I, I mean a little bit more to inerrancy of purpose, like, because Timothy 3.16 equally supports purpose versus every literal aspect. Okay. Because, because whether the 27 hours was literal, like for somehow the sun stopped and, and we had 27 hours in this day, or you were trying to make it seem like it was like every waking moment, how, how would you, I mean, that's where, don't you sometimes you know, needlessly get people to argue over something because how are you to know, was it a literal 27 hours or was the author trying to make the point? Yeah, so how would you, I think if I could try to recategorize your question, 
to fairly ask, like, how would you, in my view, the very conservative view of inerrancy, distinguish a time in which you might be using a literary device from another time in which you wouldn't? Like, how do you get to pick when it's metaphorical as opposed to literal language? Is that a fair question? Because I think that, that's, I think that that is a, a crucial question for interpreters because sometimes people will willy-nilly just pick sections because they don't want to go through the process of trying to establish why the literal problem that presents itself is not easily solvable. And so they just pick, well, it's a metaphor, and then they just kind of move on with it. Um, I, I would go so far, though this is not a, a class on scriptural interpretation, I do want to do one of those in the future, um, I would go... Um, only so far for the purposes of our evenings to say that what you look at is the literary genre in which the statement is made. If it is a historical genre, then you don't get to use metaphorical language as your explanation for what's in there, because the point is to write down what actually happened for the most part. I don't like, you know me probably well enough now to know that I don't like full-blown black and white statements, but I would say that uh, conversely, if we were in a poetic genre that we know is um, commonly will use literary devices to try to convey things in a poetic sense, that we're much more likely to gain from that um, metaphorical or hyperbolic expressions of a truth. And so we would look to the genre, there we go, somebody was, no, the genre of scripture itself to guide what interpretive tools we would have available to us in those moments, instead of being the person that's just like, well, that's difficult to explain, so we're going to call that a metaphor, but this one over here, this one's easy to explain, so we'll call it literal, literal and they're both happening within the same book. I'm going to push myself to go a little bit harder and go, you don't get to go one way or the other. If it, you only get the tools that would make sense for that literary genre. That's where I'll leave the answer for the sake of the conversation. But when we, go, when we come to our biblical interpretation classes that we go through, we'll have to discuss that idea far more in detail, what literary tools are available within each genre. Does that at least give you an introduction to how I would start answering that question? Okay, cool, thank you for your, thank you for your generosity. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Sorry. Yeah. No, not sorry. no, sorry, not sorry. Is that what you just said? Yeah, perfect. Um, so uh, the last part, point four, I'm not sure if I, did I do point four yet? No. Point four uh, is failing to understand human personalities. We've already talked about this idea. Let's talk about it again. Much of the Bible was not direct message, and I, I, uh, I made some distinctions last week about direct message and indirect message. Much of the Bible was not delivered via direct message. Instead, the Holy Spirit spoke through men without overriding their personalities. These personalities will reflect different purposes for writing and attention to various details. Okay, so uh, we were just talking earlier um, before we began this evening about eyewitness testimony. And if you learn anything in the investigations component of law enforcement is that you can talk to five different people that all witness the same event and they're going, to, they're going to pick and camp on different details in their eyewitness testimony. So much so sometimes that if you did not take into consideration how eyewitness testimony works, you might be prone to throw them all out as unreliable because they're all not saying the exact same thing. 
But you and I have actually operated within a world in which we understand how eyewitness testimony works because eyewitness testimony becomes dependent upon the eyewitness. The eyewitness has a certain personality. And for whatever reason, I may look at your shirt and purple is the first thing that I see. But what you look at is that, hey, it's a zipper shirt like mine. And I might go, I didn't even notice that it's a zipper shirt. I was looking at it as noticing that it was a purple thing because of our personality differences. Does that mean that our tails are conflicting with one another? No, it certainly does not. Our individual personalities and perspectives provide different components of information, okay? So, once we've recognized where we might be failing, how do we deal with Bible difficulties? And I've, what I've made here is an adaptation of what essentially was like an eight-part or an eight-step response um, in a book Paul, called The Encyclopedia of Bible Difficulties by Gleason Archer. Um, I, I've kind of honed it down and combined some of the steps to make it kind of a four-step process, Okay. Step one, how do we deal with Bible difficulties? When we come into these passages that appear to be contradictory, what do we do with them? Step one, we start from the point of faith. We start from the point of faith. Note, this is not blind faith. We start from the point of faith, but note that this is not blind faith. You have heard me, if you have been, with, uh, been through both of the courses that we've done so far through Prothemia, you've heard me define how I like to see faith, and I do not like calling it as blind belief for which there is no evidence, which some people try to use the, the word that way. I don't believe that Scripture uses it that way, and I think theologically that version or that definition of faith is problematic. Instead, what I mean by this is that we, are, that we are starting from the point of point 1A, that God has proved himself to be trustworthy. That God has proved himself to be trustworthy. And what I would say to, uh, so what that means or where I want to take that is that if we, if we are starting from the point of our commitment to God and we know that both in our personal life and what we've learned from the people that have discipled us, that God is trustworthy that I want, that, that is the most helpful thing for us to assume that there is an explanation, we just don't have it yet, okay? Just like an investigator that may show up on a scene and nothing makes sense whatsoever, but what you have is some bare facts to work with, and you start to investigate and to try to figure out, well, how do we make sense of what we have right here? We start from that point of commitment to the trustworthiness of God, knowing that we will find an answer when we dig. Next, point two, carefully study the context. Carefully study the context. If we have a problem trying to understand a Bible difficulty, often that problem can be solved by recognizing that we are imposing our English-speaking, Western-thinking, often very American way of viewing the meaning of a passage. Is there anything inherently wrong with that? No, as long as you recognize that that is a culture. And somebody on the other side of the world living in Zimbabwe might be, what language do they speak in Zimbabwe? I don't know. Zimbabwe's? I don't think that's it, but I'm not sure. <laughs> Let's pick Senegal, because I know that they speak French in Senegal. We'll do Senegal. That a Senegalese will need to recognize that he's reading the text 
in, uh, through his French-speaking, Senegalese-thinking culture, that we all need to recognize that we are often, sometimes without even recognizing it, imposing our cultural understanding on a text that was written to a completely different culture than the one in which we live. So often the difficulties that I have struggled with have been my lack of understanding of the context into which these things were written. And when you dive into those, you start to get more and more answers. So carefully study the context. Point three, seek to harmonize passages. And this in and of itself, I think could be unpacked for a solid 10 minutes and I will not take 10 minutes to unpack it. I will say this, that if, and I've established over the last at least two weeks, especially two weeks ago, if all of scripture is God's word, then it all has a unity behind it because it all ultimately has one source. Yes, it came through individual personalities, but it all comes from the one source, be it Yahweh. And that one source cannot contradict himself. And so we often need to seek out in our understanding of these difficulties, sometimes using other sections of scripture to explain the section of scripture that we have. Because of our commitment to the trustworthiness of God and the reliability of his message, we know that sometimes we will try to explain a more difficult understanding passage by using easier to understand passages because there is a unity throughout the message of scripture, okay? Similarly, what that means is that let's say that we're even dealing with a nitty-gritty detail where one account says that 25,000 people were killed and another account says 20,000 people were killed. Number one, we start from the reality is that if one says 20,000 people were killed and the other says 25, are they inherently contradictory? If you kill 25,000 people, how many people do you kill in the process? 20,000 right? So they're not inherently contradictory ideas. But then what we do is we, try to, we strive to try to understand the context. Well, if both of those statements may be true, why is it that one of them leaves out 5,000 people? And you might just find that contextually speaking, there was a reason for not counting the 5,000 in this account. What? <laughs> Oh, okay, sure. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so what you're providing is an explanation for the rest of the number. And that's, and that's the point, is that sometimes uh, the context can guide you to the concept of why the numbers might appear to be different, but they're not inherently different. They're not inherently contradictory. And then on top of that, the timing may give you some more information as well. But then, then it would seem like in the text, you could say thousands perished which would make 20 or 25, and just like the 5,000 were fed. Well, was it really 5,000 or was it 4,999? You could say thousands were fed or, yeah. or uh, many, many find uh, the, the way, uh, the path that leads, the perishes, and, yeah, the... and only few. So what's few? Only 20 people out of the 300 million in America I like that you're using the example uh, of the 5,000 that were fed because often almost every teacher that teaches the passage that Jesus fed 5,000 people will actually point out, well, it was probably more realistically like 15,000 people. Uh, and, and yet nobody looks at that and goes, 
a Bible contradiction. It is not a reliable source of information. Yeah. Right. And then, right. And then they're so like, well, yeah, but what they'll explain is the rationale for which maybe only the 5,000 were recorded. And normally the rationale in that specific instance was that uh, all they were counting down was the men. And then the rest of the numbers would actually be the women that might be associated, the children that were running around, et cetera, et cetera. So we're, we're approaching that passage and trying to tease out why might a number right, a might be written down. Absolutely. It's a cultural thing. Last. Because I'm going to assume that you are like me and do not have limitless intelligence of, of scriptural interpretation, uh, I'm saying that I don't have that. Did I say that correctly? I did not mean to imply that I have limitless intelligence for scriptural interpretation. Uh, consult the masters. Consult the masters. Friends, it, it is, uh, I spend a lot of my week surrounded by juveniles. Um, and most of that by juveniles ranging between 12 and 18 years old, somewhere in there. And it is, it is the key characteristic of juvenile thinking to think that no one in the world has ever thought like them. Right? How could this breakup with this girl possibly be understood by my parents? They, they've never been in that circumstance before. How could somebody be so irrational to give me this grade as opposed to this because of the work that I did. Nobody could. It, it, that is, that's teenage thinking, right? To think that the world revolves right around this, this uh, tight orbit of their forehead. That's, that's teenage thinking, right? The problem is so many of us, when we turn to the interpretation of scripture, sometimes forget that people have been studying scripture for a really long time. And let's not miss out on the resources that have existed and have come before us. Our brothers and sisters sometimes have paid with their lives to study the scripture and provide information for us to use to try to deal with some of these difficulties. Inerrancy, interestingly enough, inerrancy has been held all the way from the church fathers. I showed you just one, but it is an idea that has been around for a long time all the way up to today, some of the smartest Christian theologians and philosophers that you could find today still believe in this concept of all scripture being inspired by God and as such being inerrant in everything that it states. You are not the only ones that might think that. So do not be afraid to turn to these people in the variety of sources that may be available. Let me caution you, however, the internet is not a safe place to find that information very often because nobody's checking the internet, right? It's just out there. So sometimes it's helpful to find somebody else that has studied as well and say, can you point me to some good resources on this, that, or the other? Because if you just go to the general spectrum of what's out there, who knows what type of thinking is out there, and you're gonna waste a lot of time. There's actually some really good stuff that can be pointed out to you and shoot, we pay people here at Sierra Bible Church to pastor you, which means that those people are really good resources to reach out. But on top of that, there are some people that volunteer and don't get paid, and they're really excited to help out with that stuff too. So there's a lot of people in our church family that can be really useful to that type of thing. Okay, so this is about as far... Let's take a vote. <laughs> Let's take a vote. And if you, if you need to leave, feel free to leave. But as I was preparing for this evening, 
um, and going through my notes, this whole new problem popped up in my head that I realized that I had not addressed. So this is fairly fresh information. Um, what I've said up until this point is basically what I had originally prepared for the evening. Uh, the rest of it is a, a little bit of a technical philosophical argument uh, that I've, I've admitted to you before that I'm a philosopher in recovery. You know, I'm, I'm going to my Philosopher's Anonymous course. I'm pretty close through the 12-step program, and I'm almost thinking like a normal human being again. However, every once in a while, like, nor like abnormal philosophy stuff uh, pops up, and there are questions that I need to try to ask myself. So that being said, um, I can cover that, yeah. or it will be too much at the end uh, because there's already been too much information. How do you feel? You want me to go for it? Well, Nancy wants to. She's always, she's gung-ho. No, and at that point, nobody's like, well, I don't want to do that. You know? <laughs> how, about, how about this? I'll, I'll intro it. I'll try not to spend too much time on it because it sometimes feels like you're a little bit rude if you're walking out. Don't feel rude. If you want to leave, please, just leave. But I'm going to cover this, this part tonight real quickly. Um, here's the question that became impressed upon me. Is it problematic to establish the inerrancy of Scripture based on God's nature, whom we discover through reading Scripture. Here, uh, here would be a different way of restating the argument or the problem that popped into my head. You believe in the reliability... Here, I'll point at me because it's rude to point at other people. You believe in the reliability of Scripture because of the character of God. However, you believe in the character of God because of the text of Scripture. Isn't there a little bit of circular reasoning going on there? Okay? Well, yeah, I'll get there in terms of, in terms of my response. But as, as part of my preamble in terms of my response, this is fairly fresh. So I, I might not have necessarily uh, thought this out as well as I'd like to. But nonetheless, here's how I would respond uh, to my argument with myself. Yeah, welcome to the, the weird place that is my brain. Number one, uh, the character of God is discovered, albeit limitedly, limitedly through general revelation. Uh, what we found uh, when we studied apologetics is that we can establish things about the characteristics of God, maybe not the complete characteristics of God, as if we had scripture as a source of information, but through our study of apologetics, we, is, we can establish that God is self-existent, that he is supremely powerful, that he is the supreme source of morality. And it was in that apologetics class that when I discussed that, that I then led to the second point, that this discoverable character of God would lead us to believe that God would communicate. That the redemptive God, the holy good God that can't stand watching people perish without having him as their ultimate source of, of wholeness, of shalom, the redemptive God would desire communication to redeem people. And so we go looking for texts, and we find that there are no other texts that would even come close to comparing to the Bible. What we established two weeks ago is how special, how unique the Holy Bible is in comparison to any other text that might be tried to put up on the same level with it. The Bible then confirms and illuminates what we learn about God from general revelation. This is probably my hinge point that I'm not establishing what I've learned about God from general revelation, I'm supporting 
what I have learned about God from general revelation with special revelation, which if we go back in the last couple of points that I've just shared with you, I would assume God would do because that's the God that has revealed himself in general revelation. So instead, what I'm not using is circular reasoning. Instead, uh, what I see is, is a consistency of general and special revelation reinforcing one another in the ideas leading me to truth. There, it would only be circular thinking if all we had were those two forms and we didn't have general revelation. What stands out to me in this argument, again, I went through it pretty quickly because it's kind of new. Uh, it's even new to me. It just popped up into my head this evening. But um, that uh, oftentimes I think we have a tendency to forsake how, how important general revelation in and of its, is in and of itself and say that general revelation may only be useful insofar as it can send people to hell, but it's not actually useful enough to get them anywhere. Instead, I would say that general revelation is the very core upon which we then go looking for special revelation. And in so looking for special revelation, come across the Bible and finding nothing else in comparison, begin to seek inside the text, the text of Scripture and find in that text of Scripture the very God that we could see existed through general revelation, now more fully revealed in the special revelation of Scripture. And those two then harmonizing and getting us to a point of recognizing that I'm not learning about God's character from just one source. Instead, we're harmonizing it through the, spe the, the special revelation that's gained. Thank you for indulging me the opportunity to share that idea with you. Like I said, it's fairly new to me, so if it didn't make any sense to you or you feel like I just said something completely false, please call me out on it and let's talk about it. Um, but the point is, in, in terms of trying to drive everything home for the evening and actually for, for this block as a whole, the point is, uh, Scripture... Uh, there's nothing else like it. Uh, and, and I would gladly trade all of the words that I have shared and prepared over the last three weeks. I would trade it easily if it just meant that you would take this thing home and read it regularly and let the Holy Spirit work in your heart and your mind and your lives because he will. That's the whole reason why we have it. And, and I would encourage you to take advantage of it uh, this week and beyond. Let me pray for you and we'll be done. God, I thank you that you have not left us unto ourselves. You had every right for how, many, how often we reject you or even just ignore you and think about things and do things that are of no significance whatsoever. Holy Spirit, please tug on our hearts this week and let us not waste our time. But instead, let us turn to what you've revealed to us in Scripture. Guide us and lead us into this world that so desperately needs the truth that you have revealed. And use us as your missionaries to the people in our community, in our town, in our workplace, in our families so that we can see the great things that you can do in lives around us. Because you're great and worthy of it. Amen.